Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hunt Gather Talk podcast sponsored by Pilsen and Hunt to Eat. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and this week we are going to be talking about sage grouse. Yep, sage grouse. They are the largest grouse in North America, and they are the second largest upland game bird after the turkey. They are also a bird that is in significant decline. So today's episode, I'll be talking with Ed Arnett. He is a inveterate bird hunter and biologist about the conservation issues that are surrounding the sage grouse. More than any other upland game bird, sage grouse are a bird that we need to help actively. This is not a species that you can just hunt every year and not give any thought about it because if we are going to continue to be able to chase, hunt, and yes, eat the sage grouse, everyone who hunts them should do their part to help the species as a whole. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about straight up hunting, dogs, habits, biology, conservation, you name it. So here we go. Ed Arnett, welcome to the Hunt, Gather, Talk podcast. I am super stoked to have you on. You and I have chased chickens before, and we've never hunted sage hens, and that is the topic of today's conversation. But you have another hat other than Prairie Chicken Chaser. Um, (laughs) You work at the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, among other things, and you have quite the background in conservation of lots of things, not just sage grouse, but you happen to be working on sage grouse conservation at the moment. And I'd love to have you uh, go through some of the conservation efforts, but we're going to talk all things sage hand today. And uh, let's start by telling everybody a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got to what you're doing right now. Well, first off, thanks, Hank. It's uh, great to hear your voice and uh, wish we could have been face to face, but uh, we'll do it again in the field one of these days. So great to be on with you. Um, I'm a 30-year veteran wildlife biologist been doing this quite a while and joined the TRCP uh, originally as our director of energy programs uh, back in 2012 and then morphed into our chief scientist. So I I basically provide technical support and guidance from a science perspective and liaise that science into policy. And uh, I've been working with sage grouse and sage grouse conservation in, in the policy and conservation planning framework not so much on a research side of things, although I'm very familiar with the science. Uh, I've been doing that since I joined the organization and was heavily involved with some of the conservation planning that led up to the decision in 2015, which I'm sure we'll talk about, uh, not warranted and kind of where we are today. So yeah, long uh, long history of conservation and wildlife research and, and now in the latter years of my career doing uh, that interface of science and policies, which has been very intriguing, <laughs> a different kind of wildlife. Do you, yeah, seriously. Do you know, having having covered Congress in my past too, I uh, yeah, you're a political reporter. Yep. Do you spend most of your time working with with federal governments or state governments or both? Both. Um, we work primarily at the federal level, but we work pretty extensively at the state level as it relates to broader policies like sage grouse that you know transcend federal and state ownership as well as private sector. Um, so yeah, and we work on specific state policies as they relate to some breadth, you know, like migration corridor policy, for example, which extends onto federal, state, and private as well. I think let's start with kind of what's the deal with sage grouse? So, I mean, if you talk to hunters and people in the West and people who are not in the West, there's this kind of more than any other grouse, I think you get a sense of people on the East, especially like, oh, they're endangered. How dare you hunt them? 
Then you right. get sense of people in the Mountain West be like, well, they're everywhere. Why? What's the deal? So they're they're an odd bird in the sense that they're an odd bird for a lot of reasons, but they're an odd bird in the sense that of the things we hunt, especially in the upland world, they occupy a specific place that I don't think any other grouse, with the exception of maybe the lesser prairie chicken, which you can no longer hunt. Um, you know, I mean, if you've been hunting upland long enough, you remember that the, the lesser prairie chicken kind of shut down in what I think it was 2014. 2014. Right? I yeah. remember exactly. I've actually shot a few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My yes. friend Jim Illencipher, who was on this podcast as well, he's, he lives in Kansas and he had yeah. the opportunity to get one or two. And that's the thing. Like that's so we'll get into the, to get one or two kind of attitude in a bit. But right. So if, if explain to someone who is listening to this, who knows a little bit, oh, well, there's the sagegrass thing, and I see it in the news every now and again. Why are they different from all the other grouse in terms of their their predicament in terms of habitat? Sure. Let's just start with the animal itself. It's the second largest game upland game bird, uh, second only to the wild turkey, and it's the largest grouse. It's a native, uh, I would lump it into that prairie grouse category. It's a native uh, western prairie grouse species, but it's an obligate of the sagebrush ecosystem, and this is really key. Uh, they cannot live without sagebrush. That's what it means to be an obligate, as opposed to an associate, where an, a species associates with a habitat type, but it can live in other situations. Um, they are a large landscape species, and all species are to some extent, depends on how you define scale, but they need really big open spaces, undisturbed tracts of land, mostly undisturbed, and it has to have sagebrush in it. Uh, it's just that simple. Um, so those are some unique things about uh, the sage grouse, and they're native only to North America, uh, Western states. Uh, they used to occupy 14 states. Now we're down to 11, uh, and th- we're talking fringe states like Nebraska, uh, Arizona, New Mexico formerly had them in their safe environments. Well, California still has them, yeah. Right, got, but they shut uh, the hunting seasons down. They huh? shut the they shut the hunting season down, yeah. So, um, and they've really become a trophy bird. Uh, these this was a and look the numbers like bison or any other critter back at the turn of the, before the turn of the century in the mid 1800s. Yes, there were likely millions of them. How many millions? Anybody's guess. But there were a boatload more than we have now, and they have declined precipitously. Um, they've lost over half, uh, right around half of the, their overall range. Uh, and the quality of some of that habitat has really deteriorated. And, you know, the numbers have been varying. Uh, the estimates vary between two to 500,000, and it fluctuates like all game birds. Those numbers go up and down, but they really have. Uh, declined precipitously in population, and they've continued to do so since about 1965. Uh, estimates are roughly uh, about a 2% decline per year based on lek counts, and those are the counts that biologists do at their breeding grounds where they go very uh, religiously year after year with high fidelity. So you can you know you're going to go see some birds there usually, or or at least until that lek blinks out, you can reliably count the birds and since 1965 and those counts it's been going down 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 and what you gotta what folks will have to remember is not what you see in any one year it's what you see over time so i hear that a lot myself you know particularly westerners uh, that, that are used to riding around sage grouse country and seeing them 
uh, they don't see what a problem might be, but the long-term trend is down. So one of the things that I, from a hunter's perspective and a cook's perspective, have noticed, you know, you talk about them being a sage sagebrush obligate. Well, what's particularly fascinating about these birds is they don't, they lack a gizzard. They don't have a gizzard in the traditional sense. And it's because they pretty much almost exclusively just eat young sagebrush leaves. And so they've got this almost like a fermentation chamber like a cow. Right. And, and it's if you open up what looks like the gizzard in a sage hand, it's full of fermenting sagebrush leaves. And then if you open up the crop, it's full of sagebrush leaves. And it's it's really fascinating because the first time I hunted them, I had no idea that that was the case. And I'm like, all right, yeah. I'm going to make something with a sage grouse gizzard. Lo and behold, it doesn't really actually have a gizzard. <laughs> so, yeah, like, I mean, I have read some food studies of this bird, and they do eat other things besides sagebrush. But depending on the, the time of year, it can be 100% or it can be right. you know, 50% is all sagebrush. And so without that, you know they 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 can't eat and so 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 to explain to people about the because um, this is the thing so like a, a a rough grouse or a woodcock can live in fragmented habitat as long as the, the fragments are reasonably big they're not real wanderers why what's the big deal about the habitat loss of, since 1965 what's changed can I come back to the gizzard thing real fast because there's an interesting uh thing about that physiologically so sagebrush produces terpenoids which you know is kind of an anti-herbivory mechanism and some <laughs> which species can handle it plants like don't eat me don't eat me yeah don't exactly <laughs> but if you think about it uh, the way those digestive enzymes ferment the leaves they, ex- they extract um they excrete you know part of the leaf or the skeleton of the leaf which has a lot of the terpenoids in it so if they had a gizzard, a traditional gizzard where they ground them up, uh, it would release more of those terpenes. So it's, you know, they evolved in this system. So they evolved to eat that plant. And you're absolutely right. In the winter, it's 100% sagebrush. And then through the year, it's still 30 to 50% at any given time. So there's some unique physiology there and how they evolved and why they don't need a damn gizzard in the first place, like every other bird does. Right. They're the um, only grouse with no, with no gizzard. That's right. Um, you know, the species, it, it's just the research has shown that when you start impacting the habitat, they're just very sensitive to the habitat loss and fragmentation. And we can get into a degradation and kind of what that means a little later. But just the sheer loss of habitat from infrastructure uh, or fire, which isn't always permanent, of course. But, you know, when they lose that habitat, uh, it, it just there's a there's a breaking point where they start to decline. And, you know, they seem to be far more sensitive than things like pheasants, which actually like a more heterogeneous habitat uh, with, you know, more disturbance and variation in the landscape. And and, grou- and sage grouse are a little different. So they're just very sensitive to uh, disturbance thresholds. And those have been fairly well defined in the science uh, for energy development and those kinds of things and how they avoid structure uh, and infrastructure and noise and those kinds of things. Uh, they just they're just more sensitive to that. So they uh, hate structure, I understand, because their their chief enemy is a big some is a, like a goshawk or something, right? No, uh, golden their, eagles, who, golden and eagles, hawks, okay. and yeah, probably not goshawks, but uh, marsh harrier, you know, harriers, northern harriers, red-tailed hawks, ferruginous hawks. Uh, uh, those kind of golden eagles for sure. And, um, you know, prairie falcons too will take them. 
but yes, raptors are the key thing. And that's the, that's the running hypothesis. And I've heard this before many times, uh, you know, the, uh, tree avoidance hypothesis that, you know, uh, raptors like to roost in trees and big poles and those kinds of things. And there's damn sure some validity to that. Um, sage grouse really don't like a lot of trees. Uh, so part of that's a predator avoidance mechanism. And that certainly is one of the big threats is conifer encroachment. So normally you'd have a, if you had a normal fire regime that runs through sagebrush, uh, and it, it's enough to knock down the conifer encroachment, but not necessarily so hot or intense that it doesn't allow for resprouting of sagebrush to come back. So it kind of keeps that, uh, what we'd call plant successional stage in check. Uh, you'd keep that conifer encroachment from coming in. But we've done an awful good job of suppressing fires uh, over the last several decades. And it's allowed for, and make no mistake, the western juniper and, and red cedar and other conifer species that are invading in, those are the main two that are invading in on, on these habitats, are, are native species. They're not invasives but they normally wouldn't extend that far into the sagebrush. So you're, you're coupling not only loss with from energy development and highways and urbanization and those kinds of things, but you're also seeing habitat shifts that are also detrimental to the grouse as well. And that's where we've made a lot of strides in restoration. We've cut a lot of juniper. And I always said if there was a market for it, a good market for it, <laughs> we wouldn't have to worry about juniper. We'd have to worry about protecting some places. <laughs> So. Uh, I mean, you know, when you, a little pro tip when you're out there in the sagebrush hunting and you've come across a juniper that's got purple, purple ripe berries, stop and pick a bag because that's pretty much the same juniper that you buy in the store. It's a slightly different species, but it's every bit as good in uh, in cooking. And juniper berries are a prime seasoning for any kind of game, including sage grouse. I have used it based on some of your recipes, actually. <laughs> but I bought them in the but I bought them in the store. I should have been picking them off the damn trees. It's a great way to stop. Like if you got to water your dog and everything, right. uh, you know, you're wandering shade. through because I mean we're going to get to the hunting in a bit. But good lord, a sage a sage grouse hunt is an exercise in walking through what is called the sagebrush sea for a reason. I mean, it's sometimes you need a lone juniper as a landmark to find your truck again because yeah, just, right. <laughs> you know, miles and miles and miles and miles of rolling stuff with nothing but but little sagebrush too like they seem to they seem to favor they seem to favor the um the there's two kinds of sagebrush there's a short one and, a, and one that can be as tall as you actually and oh yeah they don't like i those. tend to yeah i tend to see them in the ones that are about knee high yep no that's uh they they definitely uh, i personally never seen them and the the science i've read suggests that they're you know they really don't utilize those really tall patches of sagebrush but they'll butt up next to them to get out of the wind and those kinds of things it's not that they don't use them in some way but you're right that and and there can be a threshold you need at least 10 15 20 percent sage cover across the landscape but then there's actually a point where there's too much sagebrush hmm. uh so it's kind of uh, plateaus out and then starts to decline. Habitat use of, of sage starts to decline once you break over maybe 70% of canopy cover of sagebrush in the landscape. So uh, there can be too much. And for those of us that have hunted a lot of sagebrush, you kind of come into those areas and you just you just work the edges and go find different places sometimes. It just doesn't do any good to go in the middle of an ultra-dense, heavy sagebrush patch. So And the other thing they 
really key in on, particularly um, in the uh, brood rearing and uh, early fall stage, are wet meadows because they switch to the chicks are eating insects and forbs almost immediately, and they they surely are eating sagebrush too, but they're really hitting the um, hitting the insects and the young tender forbs early on in their life. And so those wet meadows are really important. Uh, and when we get to the hunting aspect, that's something that's worthy of discussing because I certainly high grade habitats and look for those areas. Um, and it's also a possible conservation tool in the future if you want to reduce harvest on, on sage grouse. Uh, move the seasons later, later in the year and they move out of those wet meadows because they dry up and then they start using uh, sagebrush almost exclusively. Mm. It's, it's just a, a, the things that biologists are talking about. If you, you know, if you want to reduce harvest on some of the younger, uh, the young broods, um, just move it to October. <laughs> so. Yeah, they, they talk about that a lot in conservation circles. Like, for example, with, um, with bantail pigeons. Uh-huh. So the bantail pigeons, they, the seasons are traditionally in September, but you could run that season anywhere from August to October and it would affect, you know, which kind of pigeon you're shooting. So I guess it's the same with sage grass. Similar, just in terms of how they use the landscape. So, but those wet meadows are really important and it's, it's partly why, why uh, private land can be so important because a lot of times the wet meadows and stream systems, not everywhere, no, all, all the time, uh, but they, private land's a very important component of sage grouse, sage grouse and sagebrush conservation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you have big giant ranches and then there's big, huge swaths of BLM land. And so, uh, so again, back on the habitat thing. What happens, what does a sage grouse do when it's wandering around and it sees a road? Like, do sage grouse care about roads? It depends on the road and it depends on the traffic. If it's an interstate, they avoid it by up to a mile or more. Um, if it's a two track, you'll see them right in the middle of the two track mm-hmm. and every, and kind of everything in between. So it depends. And a little bit of that's the jack in the, what I call the jack in the box biology. When I hear people driving around saying, Oh, I see them everywhere. <laughs> Well, they're probably driving dirt roads, two tracks, and they do see them on those kinds of roads. But main main highways or main county roads, there tends to be an avoidance factor there. You and had it, mentioned noise before, and so I'm, I'm imagining the mile gap on an interstate is is a not only a zipping car thing, but it's a noise thing. Correct. What's the what's the deal with noise in sage hens? So the studies that I'm aware of, and I, I haven't looked at them in a little while, and I can't remember the exact decibel range, but there is a threshold of noise emitting from uh, pump, you know, uh, active oil wells that are that are being drilled and, and such during the early phase of development. That's very disruptive to, to sage grouse. Uh, that's pretty well documented by um, scientists there in uh, in California, actually. Can't remember where uh, UC Davis, I believe. Uh, they've done some good work there, and others have as well. So there is definitely a kind of a threshold of noise that is acceptable to sage grouse, and usually that's associated with the early stages of development, uh, where there's lots of noise, lots of traffic, and then when wells are producing and the traffic dies down, uh, things change. Then it becomes more of an infrastructure relationship and the loss of habitat and and those kinds of things. So, I mean, is it just they can't hear potential predators? Is that the, why they, they avoid it? 
I think that's a fair hypothesis. I think it in, 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 it uh, interferes with uh, their breeding and um, the the lecking behaviors and the you know the noises that they're emitting that that time. So yeah, all all of those things factor into to why noise is a disturbance, especially when you evolved in a noiseless, a relatively noiseless system. Yeah, it's true. I mean, if you if you're ever in true sagebrush sea. You don't hear a Quiet. ton of birds, you know, and you hear breeze and wind. It's and, it, and a lot of times, at least during the hunting season, it's not overly windy. Correct, and it's it's a peaceful place. I I seek a lot of solace sagebrush sea <laughs> for that very reason. Hey everybody, I'd like to take this time to thank Filson for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. As you may know, I wear their gear in the field all the time. I love their vests. I love their outerwear. Their tin cloth jacket is awesome. And as upland game bird seasons are approaching, definitely take a look at their collection of gear. A lot of it is new. A lot of it has been around for decades. And all of it is super, super high quality. If you are in the market for something to wear on your upland hunt this fall, absolutely check out Filson. I can totally vouch for them from personal experience. Filson was founded in Seattle in 1897 when they started outfitting prospectors for the Klondike Gold Rush. And ever since then, they've been committed to creating best-in-class gear for the world's toughest people in the most unforgiving conditions. You know, there's all kinds of politics involved in it. And the politic that – I'll, I'll try and explain the, the broad brushstrokes to, to the listeners out there, and you'll correct me when I'm wrong. Um, the best I can understand it is that because the numbers of sage hens are are going down, the there are two main alternatives. You can put them on the endangered species list, but if you do that, that comes with a whole bunch of other consequences that not only means you can't hunt them anymore, but it, there's a ton of consequences for private landowners, of which are a big portion of where they actually live, and it's it. There's a cascading effect in terms of other things that you can and cannot do in that region because when you have endangered species, like the official legal endangered species, there's you know the very, very strict rules that you can't accidentally kill one. And so you have right. to take measures to not actually kill one. And so all parties, conservationists, most conservationists, um, but the energy, uh, the energy uh, industry, the the ranchers, and even the local communities are like, yeah, we don't want to put this in the endangered species list because of the, all these reasons. So we need to come up with some kind of a plan that will not force the hand of, I guess, the feds to to, to declare them endangered. And so, you know, the, the there's this thing of you know, good for the herd, good for the bird thing that you hear about the this area where there has been some de- part of a compact that that came together and you mentioned it before in about 2015 uh and then things fell apart so that seems to be the brush strokes but you could tell me you know a little bit more detail of what's going on no i think that's the the good high level uh broad stroke uh let me give you a little history uh, I think it's important for the listeners and uh, for those that have ever heard me on another podcast, I can Sage Grouse, I do this often because I think it's important because a lot of times you'll hear things like the the environmentalists are the ones that cause this sue and settle type of a, a situation for us on this. And that's not really true. Back, um, I mean, Sage Grouse are one of the most studied birds that we know of, they've been researched since the mid 1950s, probably earlier than that too. But back in 1994, 
somewhere in 1994-95, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies, they had formed a technical team prior to that on uh, sage grouse. And that technical team evaluated the potential for filing a listing, a petition listing for sage grouse back in 1994 because they were concerned about that loss of habitat and declining numbers. And what they determined back then was that the species did not warrant listing. It didn't meet the five criteria. And God, don't ask me what those are. I can't remember them all. But (laughs) it has to do with threats and uh, all of those kinds of things and how they're being addressed, but they did not meet all five criteria. Well, back right around the turn of, uh, of into the 2000s, right around 1999, 2000, there was just this cascade of petitions and legal actions. Um, the populations were, various populations were proposed for either listing as threatened or 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 endangered uh there's let a, me stop you for a second so oh, if sure you, if you don't know if you're listening to this in like populations what are you talking about so what that means is there's a, a set group of sage grouse or any animal like in say northeastern california where they're kind of isolated and and so even though there might be a, it's like grizzlies too so like there's lots and lots of grizzlies right. in some places but not on others so what ed's talking about is in certain spots eastern northeastern california being one of them there's only a few sage grouse so that that's a population that is more than threat than say wyoming so thank thank you for that clarification uh because that is one of the subpopulations right there in california they call it the bi-state it used to be called the mono basin population it's just a separate genetically isolated population uh, Washington State has its own. It was proposed as threatened, um, and it was determined to be threatened, actually. Um, and then you've got uh, kind of what we call the range-wide population, which is northeast California, up to Oregon and the Great Basin, all the way to the east, to its furthest eastern extent across 11 states. That's the range-wide population. And then you have a totally separate subspecies called the Gunnison sage-grouse, which just occurs in Colorado and a couple of uh, counties in Utah. That's so, a crazy one. Let's stop on that one for a second. So, yeah. <laughs> so the Gunnison sage grouse. Uh, so uh, Jim Millencipher again, uh, who's been on this podcast, he's from there. So he actually got a chance to hunt them in like I guess the seventies or early eighties before huh. they they shut it down. And so right. he's like, yeah, man, they're totally different there. And it's 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 a do you know anything about what's this like? It's like the Atwater's prairie chicken, which is this weird remnant prairie chicken in Texas of all places. It's like this Gunnison's grouse. It looks a little different, and it's it's only there. I mean, what's do you know yep. what the story is for that? Well, not as much as um, as your prior guest probably does, and other biologists that work on it. I know a little bit uh, enough to be dangerous. It's we call it the crazy cousin, the the cousin of the greater with a crazy hairdo. Um, you know, they're isolated in that particular part of the country, and they are a totally different subspecies uh, genetically, but they've got a core population in Gunnison County and a few a few other areas. It's a, I think the last time I heard it was around 5,000 or so, but then there's these little satellite populations, subpopulations, if you will, that are nearby, but they're not connected, and that's part of the problem is there's not this interconnect of the habitat among those different subpopulations and the subpopulations are they're they're clinging they're barely clinging so and that's uh, happening with all the sage grouse right so there are these pockets with even the regular sage grouse where they're cut off from bigger pockets some yeah some um so 
it's uh yeah it's a totally different situation and uh, a, a precarious one because the you know the landowners and the BLM feel like they've done all they can do for that particular you know particularly that main population and the subpopulations are the ones that are of some concern so they're they're still in a precarious situation they're not quite as bad as Atwater's Atwater's clinging to uh clinging on life support based on a, a, a very poor, ah, poor is not the right word, uh, an unsuccessful uh, captive breeding program uh, for, for that species. They're, they've been able to captively rear the birds, but they don't reproduce in the wild. So hmm. that's failure as far as I'm concerned. So, so you know, kind of back to the, the range-wide history, we, we saw this, you know, all these petitions and everything and and back in uh, 2000 and uh, in the early 2000s, the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and the various states really started putting together conservation strategies. But then there was a listing determin a determination in 2005, and basically the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service determined at that time that the species was not warranted for protections. Uh, long story short, there was a uh, a lot going on, a little bit of shenanigans on the science side of things, uh, some misportrayals, things went back to court. And that wasn't from the Fish and Wildlife Service, that was politicals doing that. And, and you know, it goes back to the courts and they said, no, Fish and Wildlife Service, you have to go redo that not warranted finding. Uh, so the states were starting to take this pretty serious all along on this. They could see the writing on the wall and Wyoming developed the very first state plan in 2008 under then Governor Gert Friedenthal. And they developed that plan prior to uh, any any other determination after after that 2005 not warranted decision. And then, you know, this decision to go back and take another look at it in 2010 the Fish and Wildlife Service did determine, and a lot happened between 2005 and 2010. Uh, a lot of, lot of, lot of an energy development and just a lot more habitat loss. Conditions declined again, and they did determine that the species was warranted but precluded. Now, what that means is the greater sage grouse range-wide population was warranted for protections under the Endangered Species Act. But it was precluded because there was this whole bunch of other species on the list just waiting to get attention. And so they they listed the bird with preclusions is what it's called. Another litany of <laughs> a flurry of uh, legal actions. And the courts decided that, no, the Fish and Wildlife Service must propose a finding without preclusions by September of 2015. So that's kind of where that sue and settle thing comes in but it all started years ago with biologists saying boy i think we got a problem here and the point i'm really kind of trying to make here is that this wasn't some radical environmental group necessarily that brought this forward the biologists were deeply concerned and have been for decades a long time and for good reason for the habitat loss and those kinds of things bottom line the court said make your decision and that's when this whole suite of groups got together, stakeholders of all kinds, ranchers, industry, states, feds, private landowners, you name it, uh, pulled together probably the broadest coalition and one of the biggest conservation planning endeavors I've ever seen in my career. It's pretty uh, remarkable. I mean, it's it's it really remarkable is. in the fact that there was a deal between oil drillers and natural gas drillers you know, cattle ranchers and the environmental community and the biology community. Like that's, that never happens. Like I deal with fisheries stuff quite a bit, 
Yeah. And yeah, that never happens ever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as you can imagine, not everybody got what they want at all day. I was at the ceremony when then secretary of interior, Sally Jewell said, well, I've got uh, certain factions on both ends mad at me. So I guess we found somewhere in the middle and that's exactly what it was. It was a compromise that was in my my opinion as a biologist and scientist and one that has reviewed this literature and looked at the plans, those 2015 plans, as they were written at that time, undoubtedly would have, uh, they would have kept sage grouse on the landscape, probably could have stabilized the habitat loss and may have even turned the trends around into an upward uh, cycle, but which all translates for everybody listening to more opportunities to chase sage grouse. Exactly. Exactly. And I'll tell you, you know, and I get this question often, Hank, you know, why do I care about sage grouse? And I'll never forget uh, talking to one of the large outdoor sports uh, outlets, one of the big magazines and the editor. I was sitting next to that person at a dinner and I said, do you, are you going to write about sage grouse? And she said, I don't think so. I don't think my writers, my readers would uh, would really care. And I said, well, let me let me make a couple of points for you here. Um Sagebrush is the home for pronghorn antelope, and it's also uh, a stronghold for mule deer and elk use it too for winter range. So I think your readers would probably be interested in that. And the fact that a once very, very abundant, widely distributed, and very liberally harvested game bird is now being proposed for listing should be a concern to everybody. Everybody. Doesn't matter whether you hunt or not. And that seemed to resonate, and uh, that person wrote some things about it and uh, took it more serious. And I think that's, you know, to me, that's a that's an important point to make, is that the fact that this species is now being proposed for listing, or lesser prairie chickens, you know, in the same situation, that's a that's a disturbing thought. Yeah, and, and I think the you and I have both hunted chase grouse, and I, chances are a reasonable percentage of the people listening to this have, have at least chased them. And I think there is something fundamentally different about the act of hunting sage grass. We'll get into mechanics in a bit, but I mean, just the putting yourself into the sagebrush sea in pursuit of a bird that is exactly the same color as the sagebrush sea <laughs> that can hide in sagebrush that doesn't come up past your calves, yet it's a seven pound bird. It, it, but beyond that, I mean, that's just sort of like the part of the thrill of it is they could be anywhere, you know, right? <laughs> and they probably are watching you, you know. Exactly. <laughs> but the the anybody who's ever seen a western, anybody who's ever looked at pictures of the Wild West, you don't hunt prairie chickens in the Wild West. You hunt prairie chickens and sharp-tailed grouse in the Great Plains. The Great Plains is not the West. This is fundamentally the bird of the West of the American imagination. There is no other game bird in that part of the world that you can hunt. You can get down to around where Texas and, and New Mexico and Arizona are, and that's the land of the quail, and that's also amazing. Yeah. But the entire Maybe. Great Basin, which is a thousand miles wide, <laughs> this is the home of the only game bird that's in it. And and so the 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 beauty of it, you know, you've talked about, you know, taking solace in the sagebrush sea. There's something absolutely unbelievably unique about it in that the 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 bird itself 
is is yes, you want one because then you have you know sort of succeeded in that which you've set out to do. But it's not like you want to fill your freezer with sage hens, and it's right. just because there's this something special about this. And then we all realize that there's there's serious issues with them, and they're just a different bird. They're, and they're more of a trophy bird now. And uh, if you like, when I moved to Oregon, and I never did hunt them in Oregon, but it was a two bird per season tag lottery system. And a lot of states are going to go to that now. I, Utah's uh, there, and I, I think Idaho may be going that way. They're proposing a lottery system now because of such heavy declines in that state. Would you have mm-hmm. ever guessed that? No, I've mean, actually hunted them in, in Utah. I know you have. I know you have in the Oahe. And, you know, the reality there is fire. And the whole cheatgrass fire cycle, you know, and just to kind of wrap up our discussion on the conservation planning, uh, at least up to 2015, the the interesting thing there uh, is that what came with the not just the conservation approaches for energy and, you know, grazing and some of those kinds of things, which grazing isn't a really big, heavy factor limiting sage grouse. It can be uh, if done poorly, but it's not the major limiting factor. Neither is hunting either. But a fire and invasive weed strategy also followed. Fire in particular, a a very coordinated fire strategy that came out of those 2015 plans. And we need a better plan, a a better coordinated effort for these invasive weeds. Because I'll tell you, and I know you see this, Hank, in your neck of the woods here, at least when you get up into the Great Basin, fire and cheatgrass are a a dynamic duo that is wiping out uh, sage grouse and Chuckers and, and quail too, for that matter. Uh, this, to me, it can anyway. It can have a major impact on all those different species. Uh, and those invasive weeds are really a big threat. And we're still trying to get our our arms wrapped around that. Since 2004, I think between 2004 and um, or uh, the last four years, sorry, uh, there's been over nine million acres that have burned just in a few states in the Great Basin. So. Mm. A tremendous loss of habitat, and that's partly why the Idaho populations have gone down so dramatically is loss from from fire. And it's all related to that uh, annual invasive grass, uh, cheatgrass. Interesting. I mean, in theory, I mean, if you had an issue where you could keep the cheatgrass at bay and replant it with the way it should be, then the, those declines in the opportunity to, to hunt sagegrass would be very similar to the kind of declines that you get with salmon runs, where oh, well, here's two years where we're not going to be able to really chase right. salmon, but they'll come back. because right. the, and But you have to do the, the habitat work to have that dynamic with birds. It's, it's, exten- it's very extensive and expensive. I mean, this, you know, cheatgrass, the problem with it and Medusa head and other invasive weeds is they can cover ground. They can cover ground and they cover scale. And we've seen a lot of the Great Basin and, and it's starting to come. It's already here and hell, my backyard's covered with cheatgrass. <laughs> I got to figure out how to get rid of it in my own damn yard. But, you know, you're talking thousands and thousands of acres that has to be treated. It's very expensive. Um, so it's a real problem. And the part of the problem, people would say, well, didn't the sagebrush burn in the past? Of course it did. Uh, and the, the cycles vary. It depends on if you're in a higher elevation, more, more wet, uh, system of mountain sage versus, you know, uh, lower elevation, drier Wyoming big sage. So there's a gradient there. And along with that gradient comes the ability of the plant community to, to heal itself. 
And so, you know, at higher elevations in that mountain sage where there are plenty of sage grouse, uh, you might even need a little fire here and there to open it up and uh, and help out uh, with the, the density. And it, it can handle it in terms of regenerating uh, the natural bunch grasses and forb community that's there. But when that cheatgrass takes hold, it creates this cycle that it reduces the the interval of the fires far less than what it would have been historically, and they're more intense. Because anybody that's been in a field of dry cheatgrass knows you drop a match or a cigarette butt or anything in there, it's going to go fast and burn hot. Mm. So you get this perpetual cycle, and the habitat just never gets a chance to come back. And it could take decades to restore some of this habitat. And that's some of the conversations right now. It's like, where do we focus limited resources, and how do we prioritize habitats? And some probably aren't going to get restored anytime soon. Others, others that uh, it just kind of depends on how they fall out in the prioritization scheme <laughs> on so to use, you know, minimal resources. So before we get to the mechanics of hunting and dogs and, and that sort of thing, what, what has happened in a, a sort of broad brushstrokes since the 2015 pact was signed? As many of us know that it, nothing, it didn't actually work. And it's, is it, my impression is that it's a change of administration and change of priorities. That's correct. Um, yeah, and I'll give you the very quick, dirty version of it. Uh, you know, when when the Trump administration came in, and then Secretary Ryan Zinke uh, came on board, there was an immediate call to revise the 2015 plans. The ink wasn't even hardly dry on them. Certainly, there wasn't a lot of implementation. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons I say this was one of the greatest conservation planning efforts ever in the history of wildlife management, ever. But I say planning because you got to implement the plans. They're only paper birds and paper habitat in a document until you actually do something on the ground. So you got to implement the plans. And we were just starting to implement the plans and changes were called for and ultimately made in 2019. Now, a lot of people will say they were devastating and and such. And there were some changes that the states were calling for that were minor and really clarifications or comporting more with a state plan so you didn't have two sets of guidelines to do the same thing, those kinds of things that really weren't uh, detrimental or, or a loss of, uh, uh, of protections, if you will. But a lot of things did change. Uh, there were protections for a certain sets of habitat called vocal areas. And what this was, the way the, way the plans were laid out, Hank, they they had priority habitat and then general habitat, and the priority habitat was kind of the best habitat and where most of the birds still were residing as of today. Uh, 70, 80 percent of the populations were in that what's called core priority habitat. Well, the Fish and Wildlife Service took a subset of that, about 11 million acres of 37 or so million acres and they basically said, this is off limits to mining. It's off limits to everything. We're going to call these sagebrush focal areas. And it's the very best of the best in theory. And theoretically, the maps were right, which we found out if some of them weren't. But bottom line, that was the concept. Good concept. It's a reserve concept, if you will. You can't do anything here. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, in the rest in the rest of the priority habitat, you could do certain amounts of development or um, or activities, but it ha- it was restricted. So there were buffers around the leks and a certain amount of habitat that could be disturbed within a landscape area, that kind of thing. And then the general habitat areas had less protections, but still had some protections and conservation. Well, they uh, the 2019 plans removed those focal areas, um, which they still have to be managed as priority habitat, but that was removed. Uh, the mitigation requirements were changed. And what that means is when you go into... Uh, and drill an oil well or or set up a wind farm or whatever else that has disturbance, there may be a compensatory mitigation requirement. Uh, Wait, part- which in English means, hey, if you screw something up in one spot, fix it in yeah, another. Fix it in another, exactly. Um, sorry, I don't speak English as often as I should on this, do I? <laughs> I speak. <laughs> you're, there to, you're there to correct me. Um, so that requirement was all but removed by the Department of Interior. So what they did was they deferred to the states and some states had okay plans and others didn't. I think that's gotten better, but they changed the mitigation standard. Um, And there were a number of other changes that happened, but long story short, uh, changes were made and that went to court. And Judge Windmill in Idaho, who was part of the the judge's windmill. Uh, win, W-I-N. Oh. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be ironic? Yeah, right. Um, he uh, looked at the case and said, no, um, the 2019 plans did not follow the science. They did not uh, comport with new information, which is true. The, between 2015 and 2019, a lot happened. An uh, awful lot of habitat burned. I, I mentioned the 9 million acres. Uh, that's one estimate. There are probably others out there. It could be more. Um, uh, one estimate I just heard recently is that we've continued to lose about 1% of priority habitat each year since the plans were signed. So and we're still losing stuff. habitat. That's the good stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And there, I didn't hear an estimate on general habitat. So the judge said, no, BLM, you have to go back. And for now, you're going to continue to implement the 2015 plans. And that's where we sit as of today. The BLM has gone back and uh, tried to re-justify what their planning process was and and how they justified in the 2019 plans, the changes, uh, and that has to go before the judge yet. So right now we're still kind of in a holding pattern, which is not good for grouse. There's a lot of confusion. You've got the BLM moving from D.C. You've got uh, a lot of chaos and a lot of things going on within the federal agencies. Um, I'm not saying that the agencies aren't. Uh, implementing the 2015 plans, but it's unclear uh, what the future holds, whether it'll be 2015 or 2019. And then we got another election coming up. And if we have another change in administration, there could be more uh, more changes. So uh, chaos is not, you know, that kind of political pendulum swinging and and changes in plans and ne- not getting things on the ground consistently is not good for grouse. It's not good for conservation. So that's kind of where we are as of today. And I can tell you that the numbers have been on a steep decline for the last three years. Mm. <clears throat> Range-wide, the numbers are down 30 to 50%. This year, they stabilized a little bit, but they're still down from 2016. 2016, we saw a little bit of an uptick. Um, and, and well, 2014 and 15 were actually both very good years, leading right up to the decision. They were very good years. Let me stop but, you for a second. Yeah, how, sure. how long do sage-grouse live? 
What's like a typical big boomer? How old is that bird? So they live longer than um, in captivity. I've read, uh, you know, seven years, I think, or so. So they live a little longer than most. I think their average lifespan is is a couple of years longer than the, the average pheasant or, or other native grouse. Uh, the natives seem to... Uh, the native grouse seem to persist a little longer. They're pretty hardy. I, I, I heard you mentioning uh, in your grouse podcast with someone else how how weak they are uh, relative to a pheasant when you shoot them, which is absolutely true. I have nothing but corroboration on that. But they're damn hardy when it comes to winter. And, and sage grouse are interesting and unique in that they survive the winter more so than other game birds. They're, they're, they're pretty, uh, they actually can gain fat from eating sagebrush and, and just their, their hardiness, uh, allows them to, you know, survive the winter a little bit better than some species of game birds. Thus, you got to be a little more careful with the hunting seasons. So, uh, I've talked this over with a number of folks and while they agree that hunting is not a major threat to grouse, uh, you have to manage them differently. And the states have done a very good job accordingly. And what that really translates into, given all the disturbance and loss of habitat, is lost opportunity for all of us. I mean, when I was in grad school, Wyoming, you could shoot three a day for at least one month, and it might have been two, um, and a very liberally harvested. And there was a moment in time in 2013 when Wyoming had proposed to close the season statewide. And they did close at least two zones, uh, and now they've gone back to it. Then they went to a week season, and now they've gone, they're back to two weeks, roughly, you know, mid-September to the end of September. But my point here is that they have to be managed very carefully. And I already mentioned Idaho, which is now contemplating going to a permit system. And they were very abundant there, so... I'd like to take a moment to thank Hunt to Eat for sponsoring the Hunt Gather Talk podcast. Hunt to Eat is a casual hunting and angling apparel company based on community, real food, and conservation. Head over to hunttoeat.com and check out the Hank Shaw t-shirt collection. You'll also find wild game recipes, hats, and other kinds of gear, including aprons with the Hunter, Angler, Gardener, Cook logo on them. If you use the code HANKSHAW at checkout, you will get 10% off your order. Thanks again to Hunt to Eat, and back to the podcast. So let's talk about, because most people who are listening to this want to hunt sage grouse. You know, that's, that's his, people want to do it. And you had mentioned before you'd use the term trophy bird. And I think I know what you mean by that. And, the, and because I, I, my trophies are still at the table, but, but the point is, this is the, this is my deal with sage grouse hunting. And I want to hear yours as well. So when I go sage grouse hunting, I absolutely want to shoot a limit. Like I totally want to shoot a limit because it's a great day. You've shot your two or your three or whatever it is. But then, you know, like, okay, I'm done. So the the whether you shoot three birds in a season or two birds in a season or three birds in one day, I think the the nature, uh, the precarious nature of sage-grouse and sage-grouse hunting is such that the fact that we can even get a taste, for, to use an East Coast expression, right. um, is is still a great thing that needs to be recognized and honored by everybody who goes out there and pursues this bird because there's just not that many of them out there and we're lucky to be able to still hunt them and I think they're delicious. We can get in we we will get into that in a little bit. Believe me, I do too. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I said before, you're not filling your freezer with sage ends. That's right. 
So when I talk about a trophy bird, you know, I think of that in terms of the experience, the individual, the place, those kinds of things, like you would a trophy in general. And it's defined in many number of ways. I love your definition at the table. Um, But, you know, when you're putting tag a tag lottery system out, that kind of by default suggests you're hunting more like turkeys. Uh, It's more of a of a trophy kind of a bird. But to me, it's coupled with the experience. And I. I limit myself in good years to two possession limits in Wyoming, which is four birds, basically. Um, and I, I may take a couple in, in Colorado. We're starting to scale back. We've got one population in uh, what's called Middle Park, Colorado, that you can shoot two birds for the season. And then in northwest Colorado, you can shoot two a day for about seven, seven to ten days. I've hunted uh, that spot. Yeah, and I'll take uh, I'll take two possessions there. So I, I usually don't shoot more than six or eight. And depending on how I'm feeling, if the population's good, I might take an extra one because I like to eat them. I think they're great. They're unique. I like I like uh, serving them to people that have never had them before. Um, and you're right, they're good. <laughs> I've never had a bad one, even a bomber. And I've shot a lot of sage grouse over the years. And I just you know I I hear people talk about how bad they are, uh, as you dang well know, they're just not being prepared correctly. So entirely, we'll get to that after. Let's 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 hunt yeah. one first, and then uh, yep. then we'll get into cooking ones. So yep. if I'm going to hunt a sage grouse, all right, let's. You hunted them more than I have. I've hunted them enough to have some rudimentary knowledge, but you've hunted them more than I have. So if if you're going to tell the listeners out there, okay, I want to hunt sage grouse. What are four or five or, you know, a set, a, a set number of things that you need to know or need to be able to do to be successful? So I, I think, you know, from a public lands perspective, which probably 95 percent of the people are going to be hunting on public lands. Um, first of all, they're not hunted that extensively. So it's not like you're going to go out and pull into a spot. And go, oh, God, there's five guys here. Uh, that's not going to be the case. <laughs> you know, you're not going to see a ton of people out there targeting sage grouse. Uh, in fact, I didn't even target them until I got dogs. Uh, and I think you're familiar the day I decided to die a dog, <laughs> the article I wrote for your, for Holly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I never tar I never targeted that species. I didn't target any birds really for that matter. Um, I hunted them incidentally to antelope when I was out antelope hunting, I'd always carry my 410 with me. Uh, my grandpa's old 410 shotgun that I learned to shoot on because it was real handy to snap out of the truck and go go see one when I you know or go shoot one when I saw it. But I didn't target them. With dogs, obviously a little bit different. But let's just kind of go down that path of whether you have a dog or not. It's the same. It's the same. Um, it's the same search image. You're looking for, in my opinion, those those areas that are extensive rolling hill sagebrush country with water and those wet music areas, particularly early in the season. Now you got to be careful early in the season because of all the hazards of snakes and heat and all that kind of thing. Uh, in Wyoming, it starts up later in September, uh, but it's still darn hot. Um, but I'm looking for uh, those music uh, wet areas, wet meadow areas and those kinds of things uh, with sagebrush ridges along them. And that's, that's what I tend to hunt. Um, I try to catch them. I try to usually wait until they're done feeding and, and settled down. And usually my experience has been I can find them along those meadows or creek bottom, you know, little little creeks that are going through the steeper ridges on the um, on the north or east facing slopes where there's shade, more shade in the in the um, uh, during the, the heat of the day. 
but I've also just stumbled around and found them just anywhere. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's like not I, a, it's not a, it's not, this is not like duck hunting. This is a, it's not uh, a gimme. This is right. an after breakfast hunt, by the way. Yep, exactly. Um, and I, you know, I get out there first light for a lot of birds just because it's fun to be out there at first light. But the reality on most upland birds is you want to let them get the feeding period done and then go settle down and cubby up and, and be ready for to, to, to bust into the cubbies, which is usually after eight, nine o'clock, something like that. But, you know, when it's hot out, I'd go earlier just because of the dogs. So like when I go to hunt the sand hills, if I go early in the sand hills in Nebraska, I have to hunt. Like if I go opening day on September 1st and hunt doves and prairie grouse in combo, I have to hunt the grouse in the morning or I don't hunt at all because it's just too damn hot for labs anyway. And that's what I run. Um, but, you know, as it cools off uh, and, you know, September, it can snow. You just never know. So but that's what I'm kind of looking for, those areas with uh, the wet meadows and and such. But, you know, you can hunt them up in the higher mountain sagebrush, uh, uh, mountain big sagebrush, too. And a lot of times you'll find them around serviceberry, a mixture of serviceberry and, and mountain big sage. But those nice big open flats or, you know, rolling ridges that have uh, those meadows is really the key. That's the search image I'm, I'm usually looking for. If you're going to, you know, most people here listening to this don't live in sage, sage grouse states. So where would you send somebody who wants to get their sage grouse? Well, Wyoming and Montana have the most liberal seasons and the highest populations. Wyoming has about 38% of the total range-wide population of, of all sage grouse. Montana is up around 20 or so percent. Uh, and then it just kind of goes down from there through uh, Idaho, Nevada, and Oregon. Um, Utah has about 4%. And Utah, you're on a tag lottery system. Uh, we have some good sage grouse hunting here in Colorado. We've actually had some down years. And, you know, something I didn't mention, which I didn't want to get into the weeds and the details of of the conservation plans, state or federal, but most of those, the federal level and most of the states have uh, triggers, what are called triggers. And and when the population gets to a point uh, through those lek counts that we talked about, when biologists go out and count the number of males, uh, which is an index that they use to determine population and, and how stable it is or whether it's going up or down. Um, and they can use that to set seasons. So for three years in a row, if those lek counts for example, are below a certain average number, uh, then they can adjust the seasons. And that's what Colorado's contemplating. They're actually contemplating closing one area, uh, one zone, a couple of units uh, because of the low population numbers. Happens to be one I used to hunt. So, and in that case, I'm obviously not going to hunt because it's closed. But even if it was open, I probably wouldn't even go there uh, uh, just because they're hurting. But, but anyway, that's... Um, the, I'd, I'd start with Wyoming. They're a good population, and zone one is what you're going to hunt. Uh, they have opened up. There's, I think, four zones in the state, and, and one kind of covers the vast majority of the whole state of Wyoming. <laughs> so oh. you can, uh, yeah, and then there's a— So you're not, you're not giving up your honey hole? Uh, if that's where you're going, I'll take you there sometime. But no, I'm not going to pop that off. <laughs> no, right? <laughs> no, but I mean, you know, if you it's go down into— this like, road, and then yeah, I right. turn left— <laughs> 
Well, if you know Wyoming, you can probably throw a dart at the map and and hunt within a two mile radius of that dart head, and you're going to find a sage grouse in the sage country. Shirley Basin used to be really good. That's all that country north of Rollins and up through Casper. There's a lot of birds in that area. Um, a lot of birds south of there, uh, down all the way down to the state line. Um, yeah, and it's it, they vary. You know, it it is the the areas vary depending on on the year in particular, if you've got good precip and good habitat, uh, you'll have good numbers. I'm not expecting there to be great numbers this year. I think, like I said, the lek counts, they're still being analyzed. But what I heard for this particular spring was they're stable. Uh, but stable means they haven't declined from last year. And last year was a really low year. So, gotcha. you know, it's all relative. But but I think anywhere in the sage country in Wyoming where you've got those wet meadows and stuff, you're going to find birds. Montana, out east, um, and then north, the northern uh, the northern counties. I think it's Phillips County and up in that country. There's, there's, there's good numbers there, too. Let's talk guns for a second. Um, sure. I will typically hunt them with Tinkerbell, who's my 20-gauge yep. over and under, uh, and I have had no problems. And I'll tend to use either, like, you know, Prairie Storm fives or something, just because I, if I, I don't, I don't want to really want to wound them. And uh, they actually can run. They they run more than a lot of other grouse I've found. And uh, I don't want them running because they're they look exactly right. like sage grouse. <laughs> yeah, and you yeah. don't have a dog. So yes. <laughs> you don't want you don't want them running. <laughs> so I, I'm 20 gauge fives or sixes in my that's opinion. I, that's what I shoot. Okay. Yep. yep, that's what I shoot. I have yet to buy my over and under, and it's on the it's on the list to buy. I have a Beretta Silver Mallard autoloader that I use, very light. Um, so I shoot that. But when I feel like breaking out the twelve, I shoot a Beretta yeah. uh, six eighty six um, or a Silver Pigeon one. I also have a six eighty six, but that's my duck gun. That's a heavy gun. I wouldn't carry that for sagebrush. <laughs> yeah, you know, ten gauge, three and a half number right. ones. <laughs> shoot them at eighty yards when they get up. <laughs> Um, they can get up at 80 yards. That's the thing. Oh, they absolutely can. So, but no, I shoot a 20 at them because I have dogs and I'm expecting the flush pretty close under feet. So, so you could chase them. So I found that if you flush them and you don't, you know, you don't shoot your fill in the first flush, which is often, uh, you can see, you can watch them fly over that ridge and you can walk over that ridge and they'll typically be there. Yep. I mean, it might be another That's five true. miles, but. You'll see where you'll you'll know where to go. Yeah, they definitely can go a long way, but I I have uh, more often than not found them when I've done that. And you're absolutely right. It's just a question of whether you can see where they land. If you can't, then it's a crapshoot. You just try to grid the habitat and and uh, and find them. In fact, we did that last year, a buddy of mine and I. <laughs> the the first we busted them wild. The dogs got into them, and we were just in bad shooting positions. How often does that happen? No, never. Uh, yeah, never. I'm looking up and the birds come up and they're just too far to shoot. So we watched them. Then we watched them go down and we went in and, and got our birds. The next day, say, a similar thing happened. Um, he, My buddy killed one and I ended up uh, uh, not getting one. <laughs> I shot poorly at that moment in time. Womp, womp. And, and Exactly. Yeah, we watched them go down and we thought we knew where they were. We never did find them. <laughs> never did. And I have two dogs. So. That's a crazy thing. Like I, I have hunted them with a dog and without a dog, and I have had them flush at my feet both times. And it's the there's nothing quite. I mean, everybody here who's listening to this has probably had a pheasant flush at your feet. Chances are, 
which is heart heart attack inducing enough. Yep. Now double the size of the bird. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then you think, oh, they're moving so slow. You still got to swing the damn gun. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean that's the thing. They they look it, like they're just in slow motion, don't they? They totally do. And you know my my advice, you know, with all wing shooting and especially large birds is. If you're going to miss them, miss in front of them. In front. You never, you don't miss very many when you're shooting in front of them, that's for sure. <laughs> yep. So I find them to be ridiculously easy to pluck. Um, they're infinitely easier to pluck than any other grouse that I've ever encountered. Like, easy peasy. Like, so sage, sage grouse are easy, whereas roughies are by far the hardest. Yeah. Uh, they just have a gossamer skin where the, the sharp or the, the sage cross just do not. Before we get into like after we've got some in the bag, let's talk about docks. You said you run labs and so you're dealing with flushing, flushing labs or, or do you? Yeah, have no, labs they're that, flushers. Yeah. They're, they're flushing dogs. Um, and like I said, you're familiar with the story, I believe, <laughs> when I decided to buy dogs. And I, you know, I always, I, I heard another cast you were talking with someone and, and, you're not going to get it all with every dog, obviously. Um, some prefer the versatiles because they get the pointing aspect and they get a, you know, duck and goose dog, but they're not going to sit in the river in the cold river like my dog will, you know, on a river uh, hunting ducks and, and such. So you're just not going to get everything with a versatile or with a lab. But I chose a lab. I, I fell in love with a friend of mine's lab when I was in graduate school long before I had a dog. And I just really liked that dog. And then I hunted with my buddies, Chesapeake's, and I liked them, but I didn't necessarily want a Chesapeake. So I went with Lab. They can and be always, willful. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, the irony is I ended up with a what I called, uh, I named her Thule, but it, uh, I, we often called her 2 by 4 Thule <laughs> because she was in doubt, no doubt uh, a stubborn dog. Oh, yeah. So interestingly that I went, didn't go with the Chesapeake and got a stubborn lab as my first one. So, but if you wanted to design a sage-grouse hunting dog, what would it be? Well, I, th- I, th- I think you're hard-pressed to, to beat the, the short hairs and, uh, you know, droths and the, the, those types of dogs in that country. Um, you know, and I hunt pretty, pretty differently with, I, usually I hunt by myself or I'm hunting with one other person and usually they don't have dogs. Um, that's the norm for me. Um, and you have to hunt differently with a flushing dog. So I high grade habitat. You can't go running. You, you, a big running pointer can run a lot of ground and find you a covey of sage grouse. I might run that same country all day and maybe find a bird, but I've worn my dogs out. So I try to pick that habitat like I was describing earlier, and I try to mm-hmm. high grade it uh, because I don't want to wear my dogs out. So I, I think in that situation, um, you know, labs do just fine, but you got to know how to hunt them and where or just know their limits and gotcha. when, to, when to stop them. I, I think, um, you know, one of your prior guests I was listening, uh, you know, runs German short airs, and I think that's a couple of them. Uh, uh, I think that's a perfect breed for this. And I've actually hunted. I, I ran into a guy in Wyoming, and we ended up hunting together. I had my lab, and he had his uh, his short hairs, and they worked really nice together. His dogs found the bird, and mine retrieved them. <laughs> perfect. It was a oh, perfect my God. Combo. That's my hugest, hugest <laughs> pet peeve with, with pointing dogs is – it's the pointing dog that cares not at all whether you've actually retrieved the bird. Like right. that drives me batty. Like I'm yep. sorry, dog. Your job, yes, it's nice that you found the bird, but you know, quite often I shoot birds better when I don't have a pointed bird. 
but like help me find the damn thing they're exactly right. the color of wherever they live and you have a good <laughs> nose and i don't so please give me a hand i don't care if you pick it i don't even care if you pick it up just, just show me where it, it is <laughs> in fact i prefer it if you just show me where it is because then right. it's not all chewed up <laughs> i can't remember if when we were in south dakota i don't think you and i hunted together like where you were right behind my dogs i don't think we had that opportunity we'll i have to do that i don't think we did we- did hunt together but i think it was it was apart the, yeah i think we were apart you weren't right with me i know yeah that. yeah where i could say I think, hey get over here my dogs are hot you know i think it know. was both of us were were oh, and I, I can tell you that we definitely outwalked everybody else on that hunt yeah we did <laughs> we put up a nice nice tailgate full of prairie chickens that day yeah i was looking at that picture it's like hey that's my dog kennel <laughs> yeah there you go you know uh it's interesting because and this the whole dog thing when you're People that have flushing dogs know you can read that dog. It's not like you say, oh, look, he's on point. That's pretty obvious. But all these flushing dogs are just a little bit different. So, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to start wagging their tail to where it's almost flying off their butt. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you know they're hot and they're close. And I remember on that particular hunt, uh, because one of our, our compadres was close by, and I said, hey, she's hot. Come here. She's hot, and I'm watching my female, and she was red freaking hot, and I'm just waiting. And I predicted this ridge, by the way. I said, yeah, we got to hunt that ridge. I'm pretty dang sure there's going to be some birds in this landscape. They're going to be right there. And sure enough, there's a covey there. And she and the guy wouldn't pay attention. He wouldn't break line. They were trying to hunt him like pheasants, you know. And it's he wouldn't break the line. I said, come on, come on, come on. <laughs> Follow the dog. <laughs> they got up, and I killed two. Yeah. And nobody, nobody else. I think a couple stragglers went that way and others got shots, but you got to watch the dog. Yes. Yeah. I mean, if you hunt without a dog, um, just be prepared to walk up three times as much. Yep. And, and the high grading, the habitat is also a really good idea. I mean, it's the, in my experience, when you find them, you can kill them. So it's not one of those deer deals right. where if you're a solo non dog hunter, we say pheasants, your only chance is to do the radio trick. So, which if you're not familiar with a radio trick, you take a, a transistor radio or some kind of a portable radio and you turn it on talk radio. Typically Rush Limbaugh because birds hate Rush Limbaugh. Uh, <laughs> that's just been my experience. I didn't know. I didn't know they were political. <laughs> I don't know. That, I don't. It might be his tone of voice or something. But, right. but so you put on talk radio and then you you're you put it on one end of the field you're going to walk, and then you quietly go to the other end of the field that you're going to walk. Usually these fields are like, you know, half mile or mile. And you you zigzag, just like Sheldon in the in-laws. Serpentine Sheldon. And you go back and forth and back and forth towards your radio. And as you get towards your radio, you'll soon realize that there have been pheasants running in front of you this entire time. And then when they hear the radio, at least some of them will jump up and fly. And it's the only way I've ever determined to, to be able to kill pheasants consistently in in fields now you can get them in cattails cattails in the wintertime that's that's another story but it's sage hens are not like that like if you get on them and you get close enough they're not going to let you walk by right i can get them with my labs just fine i kill lots of sage grouse all the time but just that big open country you know having those pointers is probably a, a really good bet um that just you can just cover more ground. Oh yeah. But but I uh but it depends on who's covering the ground. The dog covers the ground. I cover the ground because I have to go one high grade spot to the next. <laughs> right. So put some miles on. But 
Yeah, no, they're they're quite adept at finding them, and the, and I, you know, I've never had a snake problem, but that definitely is an issue early in the season. Um, More for your dog than you. I mean, I've never exactly. I mean, rattlers yeah. tend to be like, "Hey, I'm over here. Don't come here." I'm like, "Okay, that's fine." Yeah, I I think just keying in on some of those wet meadows, and that's what I was saying earlier. I think, you know, if you really wanted to put a conservation hunt in and and re- Maybe that's not the right terminology, conservation, huh? but if you want to conserve more birds during and have a hunting season, you just bump it into October. But mm. then you're buttoned up with deer season and those kinds of things. And so there's a reason they, they put them early. But uh, if we really wanted to reduce harvest of hens and, and young of the year, that's the way to do it, is mm. to move it later into October when they're you know scattered out a little more and not using those wet meadows so religiously. Because uh, they use them pretty extensively, and you can usually find them if you find a good a good spot. So once you have some sage cans, like I said, they're easy to pluck, so please pluck them. You're probably only going to shoot three to six to eight in the entire season, so they're worth your time. Um, the skins that gets crispy and it's delicious, and it's not the least bit unpleasantly sagey. Although, let's face it, sage grouse tastes like sage. That's what they eat. They're going to be a kind of a sagey taste to them, and you really just have to go with what God gave you. If you think it's a chicken, you will be sadly disappointed. <laughs> However, there is a very weird phenomenon in that's pronounced in sage grouse. It exists in prairie chickens, and it's very pronounced in woodcock as well, where the breast meat of the sage grouse is dark, but the so-called dark meat of a sage grouse is white. So if you if you were to braise sage grouse legs, they would be no darker than the breast of a ruffed grouse, which mm-hmm. is to say not pale like a chicken, but still not not red. And the but yet the breast meat of a sage grouse is is dark red like a duck. So do you have any idea why that that what causes that phenomenon? Now I wish I'd looked that up because I, I heard you talking about this before and I, I should have anticipated the question, but I think, you know, uh, these birds fly a, a fair bit more. Um, you know, sage grouse will migrate and long distances actually. Uh, and you What's talked a long about, distance? Um, hundred miles oh, or more okay. sometimes to go to winter range. Um, it's not like they're flying 100 miles straight through, but, you know, they fly around quite a bit. And you you mentioned, and I was chuckling uh, on past shooting prairie chickens. I have done that, and I've done it exactly the way you said it uh, should be done on one of your other uh, shows. And so they fly a lot more, so that oxygenates the muscles more and creates that redness. Um, but they also walk around a lot, too. So I, I don't have a great explanation. I think... Uh, one of your prior guests said get a meat scientist involved. I think that's probably a good question for for them. Uh, it'll, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it, and I'll have to get back to you. I did yeah, not look it up before the cast, but but it's obviously a phenomena across all the prairie grouse. Uh, but that dark red meat's great. It's oh, really yeah. good. It's awesome. Uh, but I my theory is that they, they fly a little more than the average game bird, and and they oxygenate that blood, which creates more redness. So it's obvious in waterfowl. I mean, they're flying around all the time. Right. So, but prairie chicken fly around a lot more than people think. They will fly from roost down to cornfields and back all the time. So, which doesn't necessarily explain why sharp tails are, are red either. So there's a right. There are, there's a physiological phenomena there that the biologist here should have looked up for you. <laughs> <laughs> but so, well. Uh, 
so my my you know number one iron rule of cooking pretty much any red meat bird is cook the breast meat like a steak. Yep. It I'm it should you. not be cooked like like your Thanksgiving turkey. It should be cooked like a duck breast or or a steak. You know, which is to say as close to medium rare as you can possibly get. Um, the legs and wings, I you know they they just keep cooking them until they're ready because. Uh, a lot of people think that they're inedible, they're too tough or whatever. It's just you're not cooking it long enough. Now, the sinews in the drumsticks of a sage grouse are not nearly as ferocious as those in a uh, in a pheasant, but they're still there. And I, I end up shredding the meat off the drumsticks when I serve sage grouse legs. I do the same with my grouse legs. Yep. I mean, a lot of times I'll cut them right in half and, you know, just cook them like a half chicken. Gotcha. Um, but... I, you know, and I'm very simple, uh, extremely simple. And I have to painfully admit I have not skinned or I have, I usually skin them. I have not plucked. Blasphemy. Uh, but I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to. Don't you yeah, blaspheme what, in here. What, what Jim, what Jim Harrison say? It's a sin against God and man to pluck a skin a bird. Something. Well, effect. unless you're, but, unless you're hunting eiders. Right. But. Yeah, I skin them out and I cut them in half and, and I braise them with olive oil, a heavy dose of olive oil, whatever seasoning I like at the day. I like Cajun, to be honest with you. Cajun is really good with that red meat. Um, and the olive oil, of course, real hot, hot as you can get the grill and um, hot and fast and medium rare. And you're always 30 seconds away from ruining it. So <laughs> at least yeah, with the skin off, but, you know, medium, medium with, rare. That's with, the key. The craziest thing with sharpies and chickens and, and sage grouse is that that meat goes from, you're right, it's 30 seconds away from ruining it, where like that meat goes from, oh man, it's not even cooked to gray. And right. <laughs> in literally seconds, it's like there's nothing else in the North American wild game world I'm that, with you. Ch- that changes color as, as fast as these bird breasts. Now, yep. that said, I've eaten buckets of those of the breasts of these prairie grouse and even if it does turn gray but it's just turned gray like a second ago it's still fine yeah um it's when you really cook the hell out of it that it that it becomes like chalky liver yep exactly and i i sometimes if i don't cut the i'll just take the legs and just build them up and then crock them and, and yeah. make a make a soup or a stew or something out of it like their tacos so yeah I've no, got a really cool uh, sage grouse centric. I've got a couple sage grouse centric recipes in pheasant quail cottontail, which is my latest cookbook. If you're listening to this and you don't know that, and they they like they like stronger flavors because they are stronger flavored. Yeah. You know, I really don't think that you can avoid a, especially if you have skin on it, uh, a sagey flavor. But it is not an unpleasant sagey flavor. And, you know, there are people like, ah, I can't eat it or whatever. It's like, well, your, your, your mind's just in the wrong spot. It's, it's not a chicken. You know, it's something that is special to the sagebrush sea. Use the ingredients that are around you. Like juniper is a good one that goes with it. Um, yeah. Service berries are a good thing that goes with it. I was um, going to ask you about service berries because I, these are currants. Uh, you've used currant berries with them, right? Correct. Yeah. In Idaho. Yeah. Um, I wondered about service berries. Uh, that's interesting. You know, in the sand hills, there's lots of wild plums. Oh, and the sand find, plums, can, that's right. Yeah, and you can find them in Montana too, or buffalo berries, or whatever. But Choke you know, berries. yep, exactly. And um, I remember uh, one of my hunts up there. 
uh, my wife and I collected, it just happened to be a particularly good plum beer. And we pulled down a bunch of them and she made a chutney and we put it on sharp tails and oh my God, was it good. <laughs> it yeah, was chutney's really a great tasty. idea. Yeah, it was, great really, idea. Yeah, it was great. So. so another good idea is with these na- these native fruits that you find while you're hunting, and this goes for any prairie grouse, is to make what, what's called a gastric, which would be you'd make a syrup or just a juice out of the berry. So in the case of, say, you know, currants or choke cherries or, or service berries, you basically pretend like you're going to make a jelly and just don't set it with pectin. So, you know, you boil them with a little bit of water and then you strain it and then you've got this juice and or syrup, depending on how much you, sh- you put sugar in it. And then that, a gastrique is just a fancy French term for a sweet and sour sauce. So it's your native fruit turned into a liquid that you add some something tart to. So in chuck cherries, you wouldn't, you'd need just probably sugar. But in the case of service berries or currants, you'll need like a splash of vinegar. Uh, you could go citrus, but vinegar is much more traditional and that tart and i add chili when i'm cooking it so that you've got hot sweet and tart all at the same time it makes a fantastic glaze for really any really anything you can put on a bumper to be fine but <laughs> but it's especially good with with uh the grouse that you find where those berries live oh that's great yeah is that in the book I'm going to have is. to look. I I am going to look that one up. The mixture are, of flavors sounds delicious. The specific recipe that it is in the in pheasant quail cottontail is uh, I have a recipe for Hungarian partridge done in the flavors of Montana. Uh, okay. It was there was choke cherries in, in specific. I found them and when it was and then uh, I did a a sharp tail grouse prairie flavors I called it and it, it's it's pretty simple. Like the only hard thing is to do is you take a bunch of berries and you squash them. And then you add a little bit of water and then you bring it to a boil because what that does is it separates the, the pulp and, and allows you to get more liquid out of it than if you just juiced it. I mean, if you have one of those steam juicers, those work great too. So before we go, I think uh, a good way to end this is because, you know, again, even though this is technically, you know, a, a podcast about cooking and eating wild game, the, the cooking and eating of wild sage grouse is, is pretty limited. I think what's important for everybody to know who's listening to this is is don't stop hunting them. Be judicious and, and hunt in moderation. And I think it's, in my opinion, and it's probably yours as well, it's important for those of us who do hunt and take sage grouse out of the environment to do something, to do your bit to add something back to the sage grass environment because they're such in such a precarious position. And you know, the one way that you can go about it is to join groups like the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. And also there's another group called the North American Grouse Partnership, which specifically focuses on those prairie grouse. And um, to some extent, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever also help with grouse habitat. This is a way that if you're just a regular Joe hunter, that you can pay your 35 bucks to you know to be a member of that organization and you chip in and you do something right because more than in my you know i want to hear about your your thoughts about this in a second but more than really any other bird that we hunt in north america this is one where you need to pay your dues if you're going to actually hunt it Uh, that was exceptionally well said hank and i i think people sometimes wonder it's a little bit like voting right it's like well what does my vote matter it's just one well 
That's the cumulative effect of voting, of having a voice, all of those kinds of things. And you're absolutely right. Uh, joining those organizations, uh, contributing some way does make a difference. And, you know, and I'll just give you a simple example. When we were doing a lot of our advocacy work on the sage-grouse conservation plans, and we continue that right up to today, actually, we would ask for people to sign petitions. And maybe you've even signed some of our petitions. When we were trying to suggest to the Secretary of Interior, that they not change the 2015 plans. You know, we had thousands of signatures. And that, you know, that's various organizations are doing that. There, If you accumulate all of the different groups that were doing these kinds of petitions, hundreds of thousands of people were saying, no, you should not do this. Now, that didn't necessarily stop them, but quite often it does make a big difference. And, you know, oftentimes I'll get my scientist colleagues to sign off on letters uh, you know, and it's it means a lot when 100 scientists say you shouldn't do these kinds of things. Uh, it means a lot from the constituency that's saying we think sage grouse are important. We think sage grouse conservation planning and implementation is important. Uh, do the right thing. So I, I, you're absolutely right. It, it makes a difference. And it is a simple way to give back beyond just buying your shotgun and your shells and contributing to the Pittman Robertson Fund and your mm -hmm. license. So. It's a great way to help out. So where can people find uh, find you either on social media or on the Internet or or where can they go to, you know, keep keep tabs on what people are doing for sage grouse research or for places that they can go to chip in? So our website is uh, pretty simple. It's www.trcp.org. And then there are links to our various partner groups, like the North American Grouse Partnership. Uh, you can find them through our website. You can find me under the staff profiles. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I haven't. Uh, I'm on Instagram too. I haven't quite gone to the Twitter route, but uh, just type Ed Arnett in, and you'll find me there. Um, and you know, there are email links on our website on the staff page. Uh, when you find mine, you should be able to drop me an email if you got a question or a follow-up on, on this. I'd be happy to happy to talk to folks. Well, all right, Ed. Thank you so much. This has been well, actually a really long conversation, but it's a good one. I will have a lot of what you had just mentioned in the show notes. And uh, so I'm now actually doing transcripts of our podcast as well. So we will have that uh, in, in full print, and, and I'll clean up a lot of the ums and ahs as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, Hank, I really appreciate being on your show, and I really appreciate what you do for conservation. It's far more important than, than I suspect you even think. We really appreciate your voice out there. Good deal. I will see you in the field this fall. That's our show for this week. I am your host, Hank Shaw, and once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, Hunt to Eat and Filson, for sponsoring the show. Remember, if you want to follow me on social media, I am very active on Instagram, and my handle is at HuntGatherCook. And I'm also active on a Facebook group called HuntGatherCook. It's a private group within Facebook, and you have to answer some questions to be a member of it. Just say that you heard me on my podcast, and I will let you in. And as always, the core of what I do is on my website, which is Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. You can find me at honest-food.net, or you can type in huntgathercook.com. Both will get you there. You will find literally thousands of recipes for all sorts of wild foods, everything from wild plants and wild mushrooms to all sorts of fish and seafood to, of course, game 
upland birds, deer, bear, pigs, you name it, ducks. So visit Hunter Angler Gardener Cook and hopefully you will find what you are looking for. Take it easy, everybody, and I will talk with you next week.